This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam and I are continuing with the series, Desiring the Kingdom, which is a series of podcasts that are going along with the series of messages being preached right now at Rio Vista Community Church from the books of First and Second Kings, talking about the lesser kings, the human kings, in this case, Solomon, and then the greater king, who is Jesus, and the greater kingdom, which is his. Um, this week we're going to be coming to First Kings chapter ten, um, and Sam, it it feels like judges all over again. Honestly, it just feels like this repetitive pattern where people don't learn. I remember when I first started getting into the scriptures, you know, freshly converted, and I would read these stories. And the first time that I ever went through the story of Solomon, his great fall in chapter eleven shocked me. It was like, where did this come from? You know, like yeah, you know. Everything from the get-go, from chapter 3, where he's asking for wisdom and God gives it to him and he's exhibiting it and he's getting wealthier and wiser and all the nations are coming to him and he's building the temple. And all of this seems to be going so well. And then you get to chapter 11, which is next week, and everything unravels. And going to seminary and studying under these people that have you know forgotten more than I'll ever know – and they show you how to read the scriptures. And in all of these chapters, you see these subtle clues like this is not a surprise. Look at how Solomon is making compromise after compromise after compromise about his character and, and the way that he's using the blessings that God has given him toward other people. He's becoming an extraordinarily prideful and arrogant in the way that he wields this authority. And so the fall should not be a surprise, even though – you know, as a as reading through it, it sounds like he's just leading this charmed life. It does make uh, Ecclesiastes make a little bit more sense, though, um, as we've gone through the, the history of Solomon. Because I remember when we when we were studying Ecclesiastes, you know, one of the things we talked about was, you know, well, which Solomon is it? You know, it's like, <laughs> is it the guy that gets it or the guy that doesn't get it? Is it the guy that's full of despair? Is it the guy that's full of hope? Um and I think now that as we've kind of been going through the story of his his life and his reign, we realize that there really were two Solomons. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a Solomon who got it. There was a Solomon that understood and and knew that his fortunes were from the Lord. That that's mm-hmm. like everything that he was going to get was going to be something that the Lord was going to give him. And then once the Lord gave it to him, there was this other Solomon that came out. Mm-hmm. This Solomon who thought, you know, I'm doing okay. Just saying, I'm doing pretty good here, Lord. Um, and that Solomon is is the guy that keeps popping up in Ecclesiastes that says, mm-hmm. I tried everything. Mm-hmm. And but, but it was never enough. No. Yeah, you, I mean, you'll notice he just keeps wanting more and building more and building ships to go to other places to get more gold and more silver. And he's, it's never enough. And, and one of the most brilliant commentaries I've ever um, – Heard on this, the the person who was talking presented and he said, "Okay, there's, you know, let's put two ends of the the spectrum up in front of you." And he says, "You know, let's go to the poor person who's in suffering, who's being persecuted. You know, if they don't have the Lord, what are they telling themselves? They're telling themselves that, oh, if I could just have peace from enemies, if I could just get out of this persecution, if I could just find wealth, if I could just get all of these things for my material needs and everything else, then I would be okay. And so that person is is in this misery of thinking, if I could just get stuff and if I could just get circumstances – then I would find real joy and satisfaction in my heart. Mm -hmm. And then Ecclesiastes comes along, and you find a guy who had peace from his enemies on every side. You find a guy who has wealth beyond abundance, so much silver that the text says it's like stones. He's got you know everything that you think this world could offer to satisfy your soul, and he gets to the top of the pinnacle of the mountain and says – 
yuck. <laughs> you yeah. know, that's, that's Ecclesiastes. Yep. It hasn't satisfied. And the person, when I first heard this, the person who is describing it says, which of those two conditions is worse? The person who has nothing, who's in suffering, who's longing for more, has the hope that maybe he'll get there. Maybe he'll get these things that will satisfy him. But when you're on the other side of the extreme and you've hmm. got it all hmm. and it still is not satisfying you, there's nothing left but despair. Wow. That's um, true. <laughs> because where do you go from there? I've got everything I thought could possibly satisfy me and nothing has. Wow. And if there's nothing in this world that can satisfy you, then it begs the question, there must be something, as Lewis says, there must be something in another world that satisfies. Hmm. I had not heard that before, or maybe I had, but I've forgotten it. That's really a brilliant way of looking at it. Uh, it is true with what we see with Solomon. So, Well, this week, as we come to 1 Kings chapter 10, Solomon is going to have a visitor. The Queen of Sheba is coming to see him. Um, verse 1 of chapter 10 tells, tells us, Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Um, I wanted to pause there for just a minute and say that Kings and Chronicles are two history books in the Old Testament, and they tend to parallel each other in a in a lot of ways. Um, well, first of all, let me just ask you a question: Are there differences? Are there different perspectives that Kings and Chronicles takes? Is one of them looking at it from one side and one from the other? Is that how it goes? Yeah, there's some there's some minor differences. I, I really should study this more before I talk about it, but I know that like <laughs> sorry, <laughs> no, that's all good. Um, I know that like First Kings and Chronicles, they they differ in the way that they approach and show favoritism towards different tribes. Like there's some language um, that shows more favoritism toward Judah in one, and more toward Benjamin okay. in another. Um, and the same is true of the Book of Judges. Like they. You can tell that they're a little more charitable or a little less charitable toward particular people, um, but they're essentially describing the same events. Just you know, Chronicles tends to give a little bit more more detail. Well, but it's interesting because the uh, the parallel passage in Chronicles uh, telling the story of the visit of the Queen of Sheba omits this thing of saying concerning the name of the Lord. That was something that was in um, in Kings, and I thought it was interesting because. Uh, you know, this idea that Solomon's fame and that his, you know, that the word that had gone out about him included the, and you know, this guy only worships one God. You know, this guy is like a follower of this Yahweh, and they say that's the only God. Um, that had to have been a, like a curiosity thing to the people and the, to the rulers of the nations around him, because one of the things of that time and for that culture. Um, and, and by the way, you are welcome to have, you know, let, hey, maybe this is, here's your modern culture reference. You could worship whatever you wanted so long as you didn't stop anybody else from worshiping what they wanted to worship. It's like we all just, you've got your gods, I've got my gods. If your gods seem to be doing you a good job, I can worship them also. Mm -hmm. If they're doing really good, I'll drop mine and switch over to yours. It was fine. It was all about finding the gods that would yeah. give you the good crops and take care of your fertility and mm -hmm. bring you rain and all these things. and. So it was that everybody had this this big array of gods, and there were local gods, there were universal, and then to have this guy Solomon, do you know he only worships one god, just one god? He follows one god alone. That had to have been a real curiosity thing, I think, to the people around him. Mm -hmm. And and even though she comes in, in the Chronicles narrative, she doesn't come because she's heard of the name of the Lord. But once she's there and she kind of examines everything, you know, she will say, blessed be the Lord your God who mm -hmm. has delighted in you and set you on his throne as king for the Lord uh, your God because your God loved Israel and would establish them forever. He has made you king over them that you may execute justice and righteousness. And so there is this kind of semi-evangelistic moment where the Queen of Sheba is going, you know what? <laughs> your God knows what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> he's powerful. Um, and so, yeah, God is God is absolutely establishing Solomon, like He does with all of us. By the way, that every bit of our blessing is given to us to be a platform to share His goodness with a watching world. Solomon had a much bigger platform, you know, and probably made of gold. Um, <laughs> but but when she comes, you know, there's some sense in which what he shares with her is faithful to draw her to the Lord. Now. 
what her motive is, if it's, you know, oh my goodness, this Lord is so beautiful and I want more of him or I want what he can provide because, look, he's given it to you. You know, those are two totally different motives. Uh, but either way, she leaves there with a positive impression of the Lord. Yeah, we've um, we, we've talked about that, you and I, about whether the Queen of Sheba, did she start becoming a, a worshiper, a follower of the Lord? Uh, we were looking at that passage in Matthew where Jesus is talking um, about the men of Nineveh mm-hmm. and then also about the queen of the south, which is the queen of Sheba, um, rising up at judgment and judging the, the – and this Jesus was talking to the Pharisees in this case um, – for their lack of faith, saying that, you know, she recognized, and you have somebody greater than Solomon now in front of you, meaning himself, mm-hmm. and you can't see it. So I would say, if you, if you asked, if you asked me, I would say that, that she did recognize that mm-hmm. the Lord God of Israel was the true Lord, was the true God, and that I would say she probably did become a follower, yeah, a, a follower of Yahweh, a worshiper of Yahweh. Uh, um, I mean, if I were to tell you my story, my story's not that much different than the Queen of Sheba. Like when I first started toying around with the idea of surrendering my life to Jesus, I was in a I was in a season more like Solomon where I was getting the things I wanted. They were empty and so I started chasing other things like alcohol. Um, and I was I felt such an emptiness in this life. There was a guy in the office right next door to me who was going through his own stuff in his life, you know, other crises in his life. And one day he came into my office when I was in the midst of despair, and he asked me what I now know are the EE questions, which are, you know, if you were to die today and stand before God, um, do you think you'd go to heaven, one? But then, two, if he said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but there was – and this is what drew me to him because he was was a – you know, kind of a Ned Flanders Christian, really wonderful guy. I hope he's not listening. But anyway (laughs) – Really wonderful guy, but it was like, you know, I want what he has. He has this peace that I see what he's going on in life, and his life is not, you know, super charmed. But, man, he walks around with a peace and a joy that I would give anything to get. And there's part of me, you know, so so what was I doing? I was coming to him and saying, I, if the Lord God can give you that, I want what he can give to me. And so it was totally self-serving. And that's the same thing going on here with the Queen of Sheba, and that's how God draws people. Mm-hmm. You know, He's He's going. To, you know, that's the bait. <laughs> you know, and then then once you take it, you begin to see. Oh my goodness, He's the prize. It's not peace and joy that just come. You know, outside of Him, He is the source of peace and joy. He's the prize. He's the treasure. And you know, but He draws people like He did with Sheba by looking from the outside. In going, there's something different about him. I yeah. want to go check this out. Mm-hmm. You know, once you mentioned Ned Flanders, my whole thing got stuck on you saying, "Now wait, just a ding dong diddly minute there, you." It's like, anyway, yeah, you got to throw in a diddly. You got to throw in a diddly. It's got to be a ding dong diddly something. Um, you know, Ned Flanders. Oh my goodness. Uh, so she says that she came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. In your mind's eye, what is she asking? Like, because when I used to read this, I used to think like she was coming to like stump him with riddles or something. Well, it does say there are there are some translations that say yeah. hard riddles. You yeah. know that that word can mean riddles. But I, I really I wish I knew what the questions were. Yeah, I, I do. I, I do too. And I, and I will tell you that. I think they were questions about whether about his God that had done mm-hmm. this. I, you know, and maybe again, maybe this is just me reading into a lot of things, but I really think that she wanted to know the secret of his success. She wasn't trying to stump him, mm-hmm. but I think that she was coming to ask him very pointedly about, "Look, you've came out of nowhere. What, what, yeah. what is it about you? What is it about your nation, your God?" What's what is it? Where's the secret sauce? Where's the juice? You know that kind of thing. Because really, um, Israel had become at the time geopolitically this center of wealth and and this expansion of this nation, and and they kind of become a big deal mm-hmm. in there. And in they, a hurry, in a hurry. That's what I was going to say. You know, Saul was the first king of Israel. Then you had David. Then you had Solomon. It hadn't been around that long. Mm-hmm. 
And look at how this place has taken off. So there had to have been a great deal of the nations in the area around Israel were talking. <laughs> you know, that guy yep. Solomon over there, he, you see what he did? He built another port. He's guy's doing okay. So, yeah, it's, so one of the things, and this is you know leading into chapter ten, maybe. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the end of chapter nine for a moment here because I've read some commentaries that make this point that not only is Solomon going down and doing trading expeditions into her realm, uh, but when David and his reign, he actually went down south of the Dead Sea where Israel, you know, really wasn't <laughs> supposed to be. And he conquered the Edomites. And the Edomites, you know, controlled that range that was south of the Dead Sea. If, if you need a map, open it up. But south of the Dead Sea and north of the Red Sea, there was a little stretch of land where you would go if you wanted your tra- a trading expedition to Egypt or any of the nations in Africa. And that connected them to, like, Babylon and Assyria and all these other places. And so when David at the end, uh, let's see, Second Samuel uh, chapter 8, it says David uh, became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And he put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David and the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And so now all of a sudden, there's a new player in town who's controlling the land where all these trading expeditions go through to get to the Queen of Sheba or to get to Egypt. Um, and so we now, in archaeology, not to take too much of an archaeology turn, but we found um, Solomon's mines at a place called Kirbat and Nahas, which is ancient Edom. Mm-hmm. And scholars estimate that Solomon would have had to have had 180 tons of copper uh, which is an ingredient of bronze, in order to make all the different things that are described in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And this place was a massive, massive place for copper mining. Hmm. And so Solomon, we you know we have evidence of this, you know where where this is um, now to this day, and it's exactly where the Bible says it was. But Solomon has now taken control of this region. And we're told at the end of chapter 9 that at the south end of where the Edomites would have controlled, he builds a port city on one of the fingers at the top of the Red Sea. And the port city was called Izion Geber. And that's where you would do trade routes. So if you wanted to get to the south of Arabia and Yemen or Ethiopia, which is where the Queen of Sheba's territory would have been, that port city would have been tremendously important. And so it's like it's like today we would say whoever controls the Suez Canal kind of right. – that's super important. Well, it was the same exact deal. Um, whoever controlled access to the Red Sea to go down to these places that traded gold where the Queen of Sheba is held massive, massive power. And so she's like, uh-oh, this guy's got a stranglehold <laughs> you know, on industry and trade. I need to go check him out. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's one in one sense, yeah, I need to go check him out because, oh, my goodness, look where they came out of nowhere. I want to know about his God. But also, Solomon is extremely, extremely important uh, for the trade and economics of Sheba. The other thing that I think about this, too, is I, I listen to what it says in verse 3 where it says Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. I thought it's a, that's an interesting way to put it, um, and I I have to think hmm. from her perspective if you're the if you're somebody that is a ruler or, and and you're responsible for people. One of the things, and I know you've you know you've talked to me about this sometimes as a pastor, um, and I'm not giving away too much here, but just the burden of am I making the right choice? Mm-hmm. Um, you feel very keenly the burden of leading properly. You worry mm-hmm. about the influ- the effects that your decisions are going to have on the people who look to you as their pastor and their leader. I know you do. You've talked to me about it. Mm-hmm. Um, can you imagine what a feeling of relief it would be to suddenly have answers to the questions? <laughs> like if you were, if you could actually, if if you could, I mean, and you talk to me because I'm your friend, and you get a lot of, mm, boy, that's tough, and I I love you, brother, and I'll pray for you. But could you imagine if I was Solomon and you came to me and said, Mark, these people were in my office today, and I talk, and and suddenly I could give you an answer from the, with the wisdom of God, how that you'd be like, oh. 
Yeah, what a relief. You, know, it's you, like, you would be a regular on my calendar. Right. So <laughs> I'm just thinking the, how that must have felt to the Queen of Sheba, because I'm guessing that a lot of the questions that she asked him were questions of that nature, you know, mm-hmm. and to suddenly feel like, wow, there are there are answers to these. These aren't just questions that are asked endlessly forever. Your God answers these questions. Mm-hmm. I would think that 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 had to have been it would be like it would it would be like scratching an itch that you never could reach before to just suddenly have that gone and have that sense of peace. It must have been almost overwhelming for her. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's one of the things for me, you know, when you when you understand what the Bible has to say about the universe and about the nature of man, it really does make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like in our culture today, I think back to the self-esteem movement of the 80s or 90s when everybody is trying to force this impression. Oh, no, 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 no. Man is really good and our instincts and our base nature is really good. And then we live in this world and we turn on the nightly news and we see what happens to our neighbor's car in the middle of the night. And it's like, well, hold on a minute. <laughs> you know, This is not jiving with what my framework for the universe is. Right. Um, where when the Bible comes and it says, no, 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 all of us, every single one of us has this selfish bent in us. And that's what causes strife and problems. And so you need – you know. Grace is essential. Mercy is essential because the common struggle in humanity is we all feel oppressed, not only from outside forces, but internal forces. We're our own fiercest critics. And so when you come with what the balm of Scripture is, which basically comes to you and says, hey, you're messed up. We know it. (laughs) You know, like God is telling you that, and yet he's still pursuing you. It gives you the freedom of not having to hide behind a mask. It changes the way you interact with the world. It gives you a freedom and a joy uh, when you understand the world correctly that if you're trying to force the way the world is pushing reality on you, it just doesn't – it doesn't fit. Um, and so my guess is she's coming to him with lots of presuppositions of um, – you know, this is the way things work where I'm from. This is the way we see humanity. This is the way we see industry. And he's laying down the beauty of God's counsel to her. And she's like, that makes sense mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's walking away feeling some liberty. You know, the, now I get why the world is like it is. Well, and it tells us her reaction. Of, <clears throat> verse 4, it says, And when the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it literally took her breath away there you go. Uh, to have the answers to the questions. And the other thing, too, uh, this is something we talked about last week, where we talked about how how leaders like Solomon are are portrayed or, or how not how they're portrayed but how people react to them that the people in their inner circle react mm-hmm. to them well because they're being taken care of and and the people that are some distance away that see only the public figure um, that they react to them well but it's the people in that intermediate distance that are being affected by them but don't really have any power to you know it's like the the leader the charismatic leader has all the power um, they have none of it yet. Yet that leader has some effect on them that are sometimes caught in the grinding wheels, and and they are a victim of the selfishness of that person. And uh, this, to me, she saw his inner circle. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like she was seeing the very best of Solomon's, the very best of the effect of Solomon here by seeing his household and his close government officials and you know, his relationship with the Lord. Like she saw him up close and she saw the people that were close to him. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that took her breath away. You know, I had a conversation once with somebody also that was telling telling me about how they believe people were basically good. And I understand what they're trying to say there. They're, they're trying mm-hmm. to, you know, it's because it's hard for people to look around and say, absent any external force, you're going to do bad things. That's a hard thing for, but you know, Mm -hmm. if people were basically good, then the one thing that's true is all of us universally, if we're basically good, we're also incredibly good at denying our basic nature. 
Mm-hmm. So, w- <laughs> one of those two things, Sam, has to be true. Either we're not basically good, or we are really good at denying our basic nature, right? I mean, because yeah. you just look around you, and you're like, wow, you know, the the people who seem to be good are so rare that they're held up as, you know, oh, you're not Mother Teresa, are you? I'm like, <laughs> okay, so what's the point there? The point is that when somebody seems to be truly selfless and good, it's remarkable. They become a cultural reference, part of the lexicon. Mm-hmm. One of my one of my favorite ways to illustrate this, and I used to do this when I taught high school, um, but the, there's a famous ring of gaijis and um, it's a ring that when you put it on, it's kind of Lord of the Ring style. When you put the ring on, it makes you invisible, and it says what it, you know, whatever you do with that invisibility. So, answer the question real quick. I give you a ring that can make you invisible. What are the first plans that come into your mind? <laughs> you know, uh, when well, when no one can see you, when there's no when there's no judgment, and it's all just you. No one can look at you and say oh, they would do that. It's just you, and you know you're going to get away with it. With this ring of invisibility, what do you do? And when I would put that question to high schoolers, what, all of the answers had one thing in common. <laughs> they were selfish and they were exploiting others. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you'd get range from, you know, goofballs that would talk about going in a girl's locker room or robbing a bank or, you know, but it was always, ooh, I could get away with it. It was never, oh, I would go and I would help the homeless, but I would be anonymous in doing it because no one would see me and that would be such a relief. You know, no, it was never a positive thing that you would use your invisibility for. So what's your quick answer? My quick answer is I would be able to finally unbutton my pants and breathe. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) What would a fat old man do with a ring of invisibility? He'd finally be able to unbutton those pants. Yeah, (sighs) I don't know, but but I mean the – to be honest, like now, back in the day, it would totally have been something like robbing, the, robbing a bank. Now, you know, even even as a Christian, if I had that ring long enough, you know, I've got to think that I'm going to use that power to rig things the way I think they should go. I was about to say, I think that I would become a bit of a vigilante. You know, <laughs> I, I would. I would. I, you know, I have my I have my own particular sense of right and wrong and by the way there's a good there's a reason why i'm not in charge of the world (laughs) because you can't trust my sense of right and wrong um but i do think that i would i would i would have a tendency to try to fix things if i had if i could turn invisible i would try to fix things yeah and that would be bad (laughs) just saying that would be bad but you would probably fix things in a machiavellian sense of the ends justify the means and you might cut corners or do wrong things to get a greater good like that's that's where we go as people yeah and so there's there's something that's just inherently selfish in us it's why we fight in our marriages it's why we hold grudges it's why we get offended when everything doesn't go our way like we are we are self-absorbed center of the universe creatures And the Bible comes to us and says, yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) So the Queen of Sheba here in verse 6, her reaction continues. It says, and she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. And, you know, first of all, this is... What a statement to make, because the one thing that we're pretty confident of is that in the telling of a thing, exaggeration tends to creep in. <laughs> you know, I, have, has anybody ever told you a story and actually, you know, they're telling you something that they want to have an emotional impact, like, you would not believe King Solomon, man. The dude has gold on everything. It's like, you're... You're going to exaggerate. When somebody comes to tell you a story, Sam, and they mm-hmm. want you to feel a certain way, they want to know you're going to feel that way, so they tend to exaggerate, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure that the stories she had been told were, Solomon's like 12 feet tall. He's made of gold himself. <laughs> you know, anything that he spits on turns into gold. You know, that sort of thing. Some ridiculous things like that, these mythological tales. And yet she comes to him and says, the half was not told me. You know, this was one very impressive place to tour. It was like, and okay, this is going to sound like a terrible, <laughs> this is this is how small my mind is, but 
1971, Disney World opened, and I was 10 years old. I guess I, I think, I think I was 11 by the time we actually went there. A 11 year old guy walking on Main Street in Disney World for the first time. Um, I was just literally speechless. I remember coming through the gates and looking down Main Street, and as an 11 year old, my literally took my breath away like I could not catch my breath and every place I looked and every you know thing that I stepped into this incredible sense of wonder and I came away from that trip to Disney World you know it's like I, we we went to Tomorrowland and we ate at the lunching pad and and I had the most amazing hamburger which is just a junky little five dollar microwave <laughs> hamburger i've been back with my own kids the place is fine but it's it's nothing like but i just imagine that that her sense of wonder that's one of the few places on earth that i have visited in my life where i because i've not been to you know i've not been to the grand canyon i've not been to some of the the natural things that they tell you that sense of wonder just takes away takes your breath away so i have to go back to disney world as an 11 year old but i remember coming out of there thinking i have seen the most amazing place that has ever existed ever (laughs) and i have to imagine that she kind of felt that way it's like every place that she looked in solomon's kingdom there she saw something else that was that was just as amazing you know just unbelievable beyond all reports yeah had to have been an, it had to have been almost overwhelming yeah and and she's she responds with incredible generosity to that like you get the sense that she goes there on a mission uh, probably for multiple reasons um, but part of it, it for sure, is to figure out, okay what's up with this monotheism what's up with this Yahweh and Solomon and all these things I'm hearing and you know, she's probably going, rolling her eyes, thinking, "Okay, this is going to be a you know a political ambassador kind of a trip," and then walks away, going, "This guy's the real deal. Right. Look at this." You know, everybody around him. I mean, remember in chapter four when it talks about what Solomon's daily provisions were, and you're like, "Holy cow!" Like this guy. Well, he's with those that are in his inner circle. Man, he just keeps them happy. And one of the things that you find in the ancient world, and I'm wondering if this is part of what she's coming to him with, you know, thinking problems. If you look at cultures in the ancient world, the prevalence of assassination is through the roof. I mean, absolutely through the roof, particularly in this region of the world. And so she comes into this kingdom where all of the servants are happy. The men are happy. The wives are happy. Like everybody that she encounters just seems utterly delighted to be a part of Solomon's inner circle, his kingdom. Um, That's not that, you know, that was probably a bit unusual for her, you know, in the ancient world. And so to see it, it's like, oh my goodness, this guy has, he's figured it out, you know. And then she even says that, verse 8, happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. The the parallel passage in Chronicles actually adds, happy are your wives. I'm th- mm-hmm. When I read that, by the way, I'm like, now that's a good trick. <laughs> that's a good trick, Solomon. You know, it's like, I get the men are happy, the servants are happy, but happy are your wives. You had yeah. a thousand of them. Yeah, he probably paraded the 40 that were happy. That were yeah. happy, yes. We're not going to let you talk to the other 960. They're not important. Yeah. You know, so. uh, verse 9 Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And I want to pause there for just a second. How many times have you and I said that's what the king is supposed to do? Mm-hmm. is to execute justice and righteousness. And it, and that's the reason why the only king that's ever going to do that perfectly is King Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's like every human king, that's their job. And they do it to a greater or lesser extent. But that's what the king is supposed to do. People are like, mm-hmm. what, you know, yeah. why do you guys always talk about King Jesus and the king and the kingdom? Because the point of the king is the king yeah. brings justice and righteousness. Yeah. And not to get too far ahead of our, ourselves where we're going with today's chapter, um, but you have to stop for a moment. And I, like, and this is helpful when you're reading this. If, if Jesus had been Solomon – you know, like just just for a moment, imagine that the same things are happening 
as they happened to Solomon, are happening to Jesus, how would Jesus have responded? And one of the things that Solomon does that blows the Queen of Sheba away is he takes care of his inner circle, like those that are close to them. You know, he's pouring out his wealth. He's pouring out his abundance on them. And they're really happy, right? They're, they're you know, look at them. Oh, my goodness. They're delighting in this. But King Jesus comes along. And what does he do? You know, one you know, it says in the next passage, she gives the king 120 talents of gold, which is this insane gift of wealth. What would Jesus do? Like, he leaves all of that, right? He leaves all of the abundance. He leaves all the wealth. He comes into the world. And by the way, he pours out this abundant wisdom and the abundant blessing on those that are in his inner circle. We call them the church. But what then does he call his church to do? He doesn't tell his church. You know, the difference between Solomon and Jesus is Solomon looked at those closest to them to himself and said, okay, you're happy. It keeps me safe. Good. You can serve me because you're happy in my inner circle. And he neglected those far away. And in the next chapter or two chapters from now, they all rebel and leave him. What does Jesus do? He takes those that are closest to him, those that have been most blessed by his kingdom, And what does he say? He says, take this wealth, take this treasure, take this prosperity and go to the far off. Mm -hmm. Don't don't take my abundant blessing on you. Come into my inner courts and get comfortable, which is what we tend to do as a church, don't we? (laughs) You know? Yeah. He he says, take this wealth, take this treasure, this gospel, and go give it to those that are far off, those on the by roads and the far highways and those that are of different countries. I want you to take this wealth and spread it all over the place. I'll be poor so that everyone else can be rich. Mm-hmm. So you come to Solomon, and I tell you what, the Queen of Sheba is right in the ancient world by comparison to look at Solomon and go, oh, my goodness, he's figured it out. So how much more should our breath be taken away by a king who sets all of that aside, who takes no personal privilege, gives it away, and then calls his inner circle to go and give it to the poorest mm-hmm. and the most excluded. That should take our breath away because it's totally revolutionary. It's counterintuitive to the way our world works. It is. But that's the difference between Solomon and Jesus. Solomon takes the blessing of God and builds it around himself so that he can be comfortable and mighty and and secure, and Jesus gives every bit of that away so that we can be wealthy and secure. One of the great debates of our time is how are we supposed to take care of the, the least and the left out, the poor and the downtrodden, what, however, whatever phrase you want to use for the marginalized in our world that need help. And, and this big argument over, you know, how they should be taken care of. And I've often – well, you and I have often talked about this, that mm-hmm. if the church was doing its job, there would be no such conversations because all these people would be taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so instead of fighting about it, let's just take care of these people. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it shouldn't be the government. It should be God's people yep. that, that do this. So <clears throat> anyway, um, it does say in verse 10 – uh, then she gave the king 120 talents of gold. That's bigger than anything that I've been given at any mm-hmm. time. Uh, you know, it, that's, uh, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. We're talking so about millions of dollars worth of gold. You, you do the math. A talent is 75 pounds. Right. So 120 talents, 75 pounds, 16 ounces per pound, and gold goes for $2,000 today. An ounce, that would right? Be or a pound? An ounce, An yeah. ounce, right. So that would be three hundred million dollars, just like a. Eh, here you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the I, offer. I like your wisdom. That would be a good gig as a, a psychiatrist. I've got questions. Here's your answers. All right, three hundred million. <laughs> and yet it says, and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Now, we've got three hundred million dollars worth of gold. We've got precious stones. But what impressed everybody? Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Yeah. This is really bland food. It's really bland. <laughs> spices are valuable. Well, you know, and, and let's take a step back for a second. Spices actually, you know, had some use in terms of preserving food in those days. Mm-hmm. We have to remember, this was a time before refrigeration and air conditioning, by the way. This is why I could never have lived back in those days. <laughs> so, you know, it was a big deal to be able to use spices to preserve food as well as to enhance its flavor. Mm-hmm. 
And those spices are that's not just even that's not just even food. I mean, spices were back then were essential for medicine and wounds and embalming sure. and um, uh, just a lot of different uses. And so this is enhancing what the Israelites are capable of producing. When I went through and looked up uh, Sheba, other references to Sheba in Scripture, um, I found several of them that referenced the frankincense of Hmm. Sheba, and that that was like the place where the best frankincense came from. Cool. um, So verse 11, it says, uh, Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almug wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house. Also, lyres and harps for the singers. No such almug wood has come or been seen to this day. Verse 13 says, And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. One of the things that that we went past is it talks about these fleets of Hiram. And so remember, Hiram is the king of Tyre, and yet Solomon is using him, in a sense, um, to run fleets of ships that are going in two directions. Uh, We'll we'll see later. One of them, um, the port that's on the Red Sea at Ezion-Geber, is the one that would go down the Red Sea. And we believe, modern-day believes, that the king of Sheba kind of bridged – where Ethiopia is on the coast of Africa, but also southwestern Arabia, um, where like Yemen is. And Ophir, which is where they get all the gold, is believed to be in that area where Yemen is on the southwest side of Arabia. And so these these ships would go down there, and for the longest time, that's where we believed that the king, kingdom of Sheba is. And here recently um, – the former curator at the British Museum is a lady named Louise Schofield, mm-hmm. and she discovered abandoned gold mines in Ethiopia as well at the Geralta Plateau. And uh, one of the things that she found there is this 20-foot-tall stela, which is uh, – stela, which is inscribed with all these things. And one of the things that's on there um, is it makes reference to Sheba. Mm. Um, so that territory, and sure enough, gold mines. And so as as archaeology is catching up to the Bible, you see, you can start imagining, okay, Solomon had trading expeditions going down the Red Sea. He was employing other kings to carry – this guy was a an international businessman. You know, he was, he was amassing massive wealth, and he was a trading powerhouse. And the, the crazy thing is he built it out of nowhere. This did not exist before him, and within a generation – you know, he is the world's wealthiest man and just a, a magnate. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's incredible. It is, uh, yes. And the fact that, like you say, the fact that it came out of nowhere and it came at the uh, – under the blessing or the, or the imprint of this god no one had ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, the fact was that most of the nations were familiar with the gods of the nations around them. You know, and this Yahweh was somebody who was unique to the nation of Israel. Um, I think that that also was like, not only is it out of nowhere, this country, but their God comes from out of nowhere also. Mm -hmm. Um, So verse 14 goes on to continue to describe Solomon's great wealth. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land. So the, Solomon's gold was 666 talents besides the, the wealth that came in from all of these other things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable amounts of gold. It says uh, verse so I six, did the math. No, did you? I'm sorry. Let me, I did the math. Yes. That's $1.6 billion in Worth gold, of gold alone. And Be- so this is this – Besides, like, in addition to, besides that, which came from the business of the merchants and everything else. Yeah. And this isn't like fake money where like today stock certificates can be super inflated in value to where we get our billionaires today. This is $1.6 billion of gold. <laughs> you know, that like that's a whole different category. Yeah, what what kind of gold standard was Solomon on? Verse 16, <laughs> verse 16 tells us, Sam, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 <laughs> shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Like, yeah, I just made these shields. Just put them over here on display. The king Those? also... 
Yes. The math, if yes. you're interested. I'm sorry. Yes. Got to keep up with the math. So, <laughs> the large shields would be seven and a half pounds of gold on those, and that's $240,000 per shield. <laughs> and the smaller shields are three and three quarter pounds, and they would have been only $120,000 oh, per shield. Oh, that's all. That's that's all. You know, Captain America's vibranium shield, that, <laughs> that's nothing compared to this stuff. This is the expensive stuff. Verse 18, the king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. So that had to be worth about a zillion dollars also. (laughs) The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests while 12 lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps, the like of it was never made in any kingdom. Now, after I read that description to myself a couple times, I closed my eyes and I tried to imagine this because let's remember now, each of these steps that led up to the throne was large enough that a statue of a lion could fit at the end of it. So those treads were like you stepped up onto the first step and then you took several steps before you could step up onto the second. There was no bounding up the steps of this throne. (laughs) It took some time to walk up to the top of this thing. That was an unbelievable, unbelievably ornate throne. Yeah, um, that, that's a little more intimidating than the Oval Office, even. It is. The Resolute Desk had nothing on the throne <laughs> of Solomon. But here's what I found myself thinking. I found myself thinking as I looked at this, that's what Solomon put in his own house. Hmm. It's like he built the temple of the Lord, and he put in that what the Lord said should be put into it. So he built the house for the Lord. Everything in it was was relatively modest by comparison to this, and all of it was symbolic of the Lord's protection of the nation and of his... And then Solomon builds this throne for himself to sit on, Hmm. and he makes something that absolutely is totally a million miles beyond anything that he built in the house of the Lord. I kind of feel like... There was a scene in... um, do you, you watched all the Raiders of the Lost Ark movies, the whole the series of them. Did you see yeah. the one with uh, where he was going after the Holy Grail? The new one? I, no, 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 no. Oh, yeah, that's with Sean Connery. With yeah, Sean was, Connery. That's so my I, favorite. You, that's that's my favorite also. And one of the reasons that I liked it by is that is that as they were chasing after the Holy Grail, I don't know if you, I'm sure you remember this part because you and I see a lot of things the same way like this. They went in looking for all these ornate cups and the bad guy grabbed the, you know, he was looking for the cup of Jesus from the Last Supper, the Holy mm-hmm. Grail. And he grabbed it and he says, this is the one, you know, this ornate encrusted jewelry thing. And he scoops up the water and he takes a drink of it. And of course, then he dies in some horrible way. And the, the old sage standing goes, he has chosen he chose poorly. poorly. <laughs> <laughs> and then and Harrison Ford comes out the energy. He goes, the cup, the cup. It would have been the cup of a carpenter. It would have been. And he grabs a simple wooden cup and takes the drink of water. And he says, you've chosen wisely. And I thought they may not have meant to make that statement in that movie. I mean, who knows who wrote that script or whatever. But I but as a Christian, I thought, yes, that's that's our Lord. That's exactly that's our Lord. Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold and Jesus had one that was made from wood yeah why why do you want a drinking cup made of gold like anyway for some reason that makes me just think less of Solomon I know when people read that they're like oh my goodness gold like get out of here (laughs) my wife gets mad at me for bringing home too many plastic cups from Gators games or or quarter deck (laughs) or you know it's like can we get rid of these I'm like I don't want glass I want plastic you know Gator games hey yeah I'm so cheap that I I have not lost this from the days that I was a student at University of Florida where after the game on my way out of the stadium, I'd be looking around for abandoned cups and I would go gather them up. Okay, that's that's beyond me. (laughs) If the cup hits the ground at a football game, I'm thinking, was it a peacup? I'm just saying – was it a peacup? So, so. If, this, if this verse were about me, it would be all of Sam's drinking vessels were made of unmentionable stuff. Unmentionable stuff, yes. Well, verse 21 says, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver, because oh, <laughs> silver was not considered as anything in the day of days of Solomon. 
For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Mm -hmm. That's quite a collection. (laughs) Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. One of the things there that you we read right past, but you're supposed to pick up on, is so he's got a fleet in the Red Sea that's going down to Ophir and the land of Sheba to get gold and spices and all those things. But he now has a second fleet of ships in the Mediterranean. Remember Tarshish, this is from the story of Jonah. When Jonah was going to flee, he went to Joppa, got on a boat, and he was going to go in the Mediterranean to Tarshish, right. which we think is probably Spain. So this is a long way. So Solomon – in 1000 B.C. has a fleet of ships that are going somewhere in the Mediterranean to gather up massive amounts of gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks to show you how we don't, we don't have apes in, in Europe anymore, but back then they did. Mm-hmm. Well, and peacocks were always the royal bird of kings. You know, mm-hmm. it's like that was a – Solomon certainly did excel all the kings of the earth in riches uh, and you know, and, and and in wisdom. I mean, we have to be. We have to mm-hmm. recognize that all of this was the process of good decision making. I mean, Solomon was very wise in business, and it says that mm-hmm. the Lord had made him wise. So, you know, a lot of times when we talk about this level of wealth, we want to talk negatively of it. But what I, I guess what I wanted to say is that I believe that there are people who are very very successful. Um, in business because God has given them that mm-hmm. gift of wisdom to be wise in business choices. Um, and that wealth is something he wants them to have because then he knows that they will use that then and, and sh- they, they won't hoard it. They'll share it. They'll, you know, it's one way in which God provides for his kingdom here and for his church, for his work in this world. It's like, Paul says that the people that have riches in this age should be generous with them. Mm-hmm. It's not a, you know, it's not a bad thing. So when we look at the at the enormous wealth that Solomon had accrued, that wasn't the problem. The problem was it stopped and stayed with Solomon. Mm-hmm. That was Agreed. the problem, you know. Yeah, you're drinking out of a cup that's yeah. made of gold. Like why? You know, it it just it became he became what's what's the old way you can become a you can become a channel or a bucket and God intends for us to become channels where we take his blessings and run them down to other people. Um where where Solomon is really, you know, in this sense he's a bucket. It's it's staying with him and his inner circle in a in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um you know, had he been using his wealth to lift high the Lord and not be selfish and to be evangelistic to the nations, which he is in part, you know, to be evangelistic to the nations of who God is. And by the way, he's so wonderful that this gold is not my God. I'm not going to devote my life to serving it. I'm not going to devote my life to getting more and more and more and more. That would have been tremendously evangelistic. Um, And that, by the way, is what means the most to people that are seeking yeah you know and and maybe i'm going to be the radical here but i'm mm-hmm. going to suggest that it doesn't have to be a toggle switch I, it you don't, can't be you don't have to just it's not just a okay we're gonna we're gonna feed the poor and take care of the poor and social justice and jump up and down and we're not going to give them the gospel mm-hmm. or it's the gospel and no food i tell you what right. how about this let's have a meal where we feed the poor and we give them the gospel and we and this it's it can be both and right i mean we mm-hmm. can do that it we has can, to be both and yeah i mean we can do both sides of it because that's the ultimate is where you come to them and offer them food mm-hmm. right and then something else don't just give them a hand out you know give them a hand up to the king mm-hmm. i'm all about feeding people that need to be fed and, yep. and sheltering people that need shelter but at the same time, what they need more than anything else is they need a relationship with God, and they need to be fed, mm-hmm. but they need the gospel. Yeah, and if you if you authentically understand the gospel and you authentically understand that, at least spiritually speaking, you were naked, you were hungry, mm-hmm. you were starving, you were dying, and he came and through his sacrifice gave to you – then if you understand what we'll call the prophetic, the idea of truth in the gospel, if you really get that, you will not be able to help but go out 
to give justice and mercy to the world. Yeah. Um, you can't help it if you really get. And so, like, the church has always been divided on those lines. Like, it's it's really pretty incredible. Like, uh, and this may be a, a, for an episode another day, but you go back to the beginning of fundamentalism. Fundamentalism was done in response to liberal like social justice stuff where you know you had the prohibition movement so, yeah all this stuff that was coming out where they were like you know we need to seek justice in society and they started walking away from the truths of the scriptures but they were pushing for all the right stuff and the fundamentalists had a knee-jerk reaction to that and said no the scriptures are true and we're going to hold these tenets these five tenets that you know we can't negotiate on and i totally agree with that but it tended to be like you talk about, like this toggle switch where, okay, if I'm a fundamentalist, then what? I don't, I don't care about the poor. <laughs> you know, like right. why, why do we bifurcate there? It doesn't make right. sense. It should be both and. You know, Sam, I, I don't lose hope. I think there is a portion of the church today that gets it. Um, mm-hmm. I know that some of the ministries that we work with, I know that our own church, I hope, gets it. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like it's the message that we put out there all the time, which is, look, you know, it, I, we can't just we can't just hand you a tract when you're hungry and say you yeah. know be warmed and filled yeah. or whatever. But and, it's 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 all parts of it. It's a holistic approach. It's like you need to be called to repentance on a full stomach. Let's do yeah. that. You know. <laughs> and while there's always room for growth, there is no other institution in our country or in the world that does more for the suffering and the hungry and the poor than the church. Not right. even close. Right. Not even close. Right. I'm going to read one more verse. We're not going to get through the end of the chapter. The chapter just kind of goes on and continues to describe wealth. There's some horses in there. If you like horses, you can read about it to the, to the end of the <laughs> chapter. But verse 24, to me, is sort of the, you know, kind of the pivot point or the, or the tent peg for this chapter. And it reads, And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. You know, when you get to the New Testament, because one of the things about Solomon that's always kind of bugged me is if he had so much wisdom why does he end like he does um and i think that there's some sense in which god gave him a wisdom to be able to navigate the way the world works and justice works and so he could see inside what would bring about the greatest righteousness Mm -hmm. he could see it and in a lot of cases he chose being able to see it he chose ways that would be advantageous for himself um, you know, it's 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 like it talks about in Corinthians that the wisdom of the world is foolishness uh, in the sight of God, and vice versa. You know, the world looks at somebody who trades his wealth, his reputation for the glory of God to lift up others, and they don't, they can't make sense of it. Mm. You know, they they like what it does, but they can't make sense of it, and so they're they're eager to to mock it. Um, and that makes me wonder, like, is there is there some kind of a difference here between some some sort of worldly wisdom that allows you to navigate issues of justice and spiritual wisdom that says, hey, you know what? Like, lay it all down. Lay it all down for my name mm-hmm. and see what it will do for you. Like, you grab hold of an inheritance that can never be lost or shaken by laying down what the world says should be your tre- treasure. Like, there's a spiritual wisdom that Solomon seems to, at least for a season of his life, to to fail in. He's got wisdom abundance of how to navigate and how to get more and how to amass power. And I mean, you see that wisdom come out where it's like, wow, you know, this guy's brilliant. But that spiritual wisdom that keeps him from the crash. And what is the spiritual wisdom? We've talked about this a million times just through this series, but it's it's humility. Yep. You know, it's recognizing that his kingdom is more important than mine. His mm-hmm. reputation is more important than mine. His glory is more important than mine. His name is more important than mine. And so how can I spend my life pointing people to his goodness, not mine? Mm-hmm. That's a life well lived. That's a life of blessing. That's a life that Jesus lived for you. Yeah. We'll let that stand as our last word uh, for this week in this chapter. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, uh, that it's been profitable for you. Uh, as always, if there's something that we've said that's uh, sparked a question or you have a comment that you'd like to make, we invite you to correspond with us. Our email address is outofwater 
at riovistachurch.com. That domain name is riovistachurch.com, which is also where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash out of water. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, or on Spotify, and in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app. Sam and I will be back next week with more in Desiring the Kingdom in 1 Kings chapter 11, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.